The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I do certainly think we're living through a period of uh, elevated uh, risk and that uh, earthquakes don't come all of a sudden. There are tremors in the same way that uh, people became anxious in August of 2007. This is a moment when there should be uh, increased anxiety. Hello and welcome back to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings you a global economy entering choppy waters. Interest rates are going up, inflation's not yet really coming down. Households in countries that import most of their energy are facing a tough winter and financial markets, they're all over the place, though mainly down. Is this all, as Larry Summers suggested there, possibly a warm-up exercise for another global financial crisis? or merely turbulence on the way to that much-hoped-for soft landing. Who the hell knows? But whatever's going on, we do know the UK has been right in the crosshairs, with a new Conservative Prime Minister, Liz Truss, facing wild swings in the value of the pound in the past two weeks and eye-watering increases in borrowing costs that will ripple through the UK economy and society for months to come. Just to give you a sense of it, if you remortgage your home this summer in the UK, you might have got a loan with an interest rate of around 2.3% that would be fixed for five years. The rate on the average five-year fix today is closer to 6%. And quite a lot of that rise has come just since the government unveiled its plan to borrow more to pay for tax cuts for businesses and high earners under the banner of spurring growth. So we're going to take a closer look at the UK in this first episode of the series, and ask a question whether the dramas that have afflicted Liz Truss are a cautionary tale or more a sneak preview of what might lie in store for others. JP Morgan's chief European economist, Malcolm Barr, thinks investors were reacting not so much to one bad plan, but a long-term systematic weakening in Britain's key institutions. I'll talk to him about that in a few minutes. Later on, we'll also have a report from Liverpool, where cost-of-living woes for dock workers are getting in the way of any hopes that post-Brexit, that city could once again play a major role in global trade. But first, a quick taste of what it's been like to be in Birmingham this week for the Conservative Party's annual conference. It was supposed to be a coming-out party for the new Prime Minister, where she'd brag about her radical vision for growth and generally revel in getting the top job. But at least one part of that radical plan had already been junked in the face of overwhelming opposition before the delegates even arrived in Birmingham, and many of her own MPs, amid the market turmoil, opted not to come at all. Alas, Bloomberg UK government reporter Kitty Donaldson was not so fortunate. She was there for every minute. 
you could call this Conservative conference a roller coaster for Liz Truss. But that implies there have been high points. Most of the time it felt like she was plunging into freefall. I spent this week talking to Tory MPs, cabinet ministers and activists, and it's not been pretty. They were cross anyway because the Prime Minister hadn't united the party after a leadership win. One MP said she's been behaving like she won a landslide at a general election. Other MPs were also hopping mad about last week's market turmoil and the damage abolishing the 45p top rate of income tax did to the party's reputation. That's because Labour can now present the Tories as out of touch and favouring the wealthy. In the end, the U-turn was the worst of both worlds. Truss, according to some MPs, is now weak and the damage is done. At the parties and the fringes around the conference, even the cabinet were angry and spelt out the implications of Liz Truss's policy reverse ferret. They said to me she's now so damaged she'll only be able to get very little of her agenda through Parliament. That includes stuff such as planning reform. Meanwhile, two very big beasts, former cabinet ministers Michael Gove and Grant Shapps, were going around having secret squirrel conversations and separately drumming up rebellion. Liz Truss was also in submarine mode, disappearing from public view, while her aides limited the damage. I actually had a drink with Liz Truss on Monday night, and she was quite chipper, making jokes, but also being clear she had a vision of economic success that needs to be judged in the longer term. The trouble for Truss is she's now isolated. Some of her MPs even talk about a cult at the centre of the party, and it's largely a cult of two. That's Liz Truss herself and her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng. In her speech on Wednesday, which actually went much better than many suspected it would, Liz Truss talked about an anti-growth coalition. And we need an economically sound and secure United Kingdom. And that will mean challenging those who try to stop growth. I will not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. Now, that may sound like a band that should be in one of the second stages at Glastonbury, but what it actually means is anyone who disagrees with Truss and Kwarteng's very specific brand of Toryism. Almost like Truss hasn't learnt a single lesson from this week. In order to get voters on side, never mind Conservative MPs, political parties need to offer a positive vision and not set themselves up with even more enemies. The coming weeks for Liz Truss are going to be fractious at the very best. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
So Malcolm Barr is head of European economics for JP Morgan here in London. And as I said at the start of the programme, he wrote a rather eye-catching piece just as all hell was breaking loose in the financial markets for the UK the other day, entitled The Fiscal Event, Brexit and Silly Walks. Uh, Malcolm, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Now, in that piece, you basically say that the financial markets were not only doubtful about this government's promises, but they were sort of structurally doubtful about the state of UK institutions now. And, you know, that was a that's rooted in policy shifts going back many years. So just talk us through it, because, of course, usually a lot of the sort of research that comes out of places like JP Morgan is quite short term. And you were making a very, a very long term and a rather damning argument. Well, thanks, Stephanie. I mean, the, the basic idea which I've been trying to investigate in that piece is, is really that there have been a set of changes going on for a while, which have been tending to create more space for policymakers to steer off the straight and narrow. Some of the guardrails have been being removed over time. And I don't think this is a new process. I think it goes back beyond Brexit, but Brexit certainly made the process more intense. And as a result, I think that you have to have that little bit of history in mind when you ask yourself the question, well, hang on, the Trust Administration had said, we are going to deal with medium-term sustainability, but why, why were markets not prepared to take them on trust? And I think that that is really because, as I say, over time, I think a lot of things have been changing, which really have made an accident like this a lot more likely to happen. I mean, it's funny because it's the kind of analysis that one would usually hear of an emerging market economy when people talk about weaknesses in institutions or even the basic rule of law. I mean, you list, it's quite devastating, you listed the things that were considered to be, as you say, the sort of guardrails that that helped to sort of push policy choices towards orthodoxy, even when you had unorthodox politicians, independent central bank, independent monitoring of the fiscal choices, a technically proficient and independent civil service, functioning parliamentary oversight, a respected judiciary. When you think of Brexit, the sort of mayhem in politics of post-Brexit years under Boris Johnson and others, more or less all of those things have been undermined to some extent. I, I think that's right. And it, it can sound like you're making a very sort of party political point sometimes when you're discussing this. And I, I really actually think this is a point which isn't about whether you're from the left or from the right or whether you're firmly in the middle. I think it's really just about understanding how policy is set. And I mean, I was, I was asking myself the, the question, what is it that's different about what's what's been happening in the last week or two weeks compared to some of the sort of iconic UK debacles that we, we all think about in the past? You know, the IMF loan, the, the exit from the ERM, uh, the financial crisis. You know what? It, it, is this just another one of those or is it different? And I, I would argue it is a bit different. And the reason it's a bit different is I think if you go back to the 76 IMF, if you Look at the ERM exit, and even looking now, at the sorry, fund- just for those who don't remember the finer points of exchange rate policy in Europe, that was when we joined the exchange rate system in Europe that came before the euro, and then had to spectac- spectacularly exit it because the markets decided we just couldn't sustain the rate we were at. 
That's right. If you've been covering the UK, these these events are rather tattooed on the back of your eyeballs <laughs> as the, the kind of big events where we really messed up. But I think there is a difference between them and now. And I think the, the, the difference is that those failings was, were, were the failings of institutions that were actually trying to do what was quite orthodox or of their time. You know, if you look at what the Labour government was doing in 76, it might look a little bit odd now, but by the standards of the time, they, they were doing things that were very much seen in other administrations around Europe. You look at the ERM, you know, there was a, a sense in which the UK was, like a lot of other countries, just trying to figure out what policy regime you needed to have in place when you moved away from monetarism. You know, so I think, again, kind of orthodox, the financial crisis, very much the UK was doing what other countries were doing. I think what's different this time around is that really what we're seeing is, is that the changes that have been going on for a while have given politicians room for an experimentalism that really we, wouldn't, we, we didn't see through any of those episodes. It's difficult in my mind to imagine a similar set of errors having been made by any incoming administration over really the last 15 to 20 years in the sense of being able to present policy in a way that was so roundly condemned in both the political space and by the market reaction. More fundamentally, I think the UK is in a state where looking over the coming years, I think that we are at more risk of events like this occurring unless we begin to repair some of the institutional changes that you mentioned before, improving parliamentary oversight to some extent, making it have a little bit more teeth, making sure that politicians are actually respecting and listening to independent voices like the civil service and the Office for Budget Responsibility. Everything you say, Malcolm, could be quite reassuring to people listening in the rest of the world because it sounds like the market ructions and the, the really startling spike in borrowing costs and the feeling for a while anyway that things were sort of out of control um, is a UK problem. Uh, it's it's an, it's something that's that's result of UK policy mistakes. The government would make the argument, and some others would make the argument that no, the UK has perhaps got a few things wrong, or it has been the first country to face um, a more challenging world. But it won't be the last because the financial markets not wanting to borrow at such cheap rates to governments anymore and inflation being a difficult problem to fix without hurting your economy. Well, those two challenges are going to face every government in the next few months and maybe years. I think there are some lessons to be taken from this. We have a very, very big energy shock, which the global economy is trying to digest. And an energy shock basically means that those who are energy consumers are going to be worse off and the benefits are going to the energy producers. And that is a, as central bankers are very fond of telling us, that is a unavoidable real adjustment. And that is out there. I think what the UK experience does tell you is that when you try to address that, you must make sure that whatever you're doing 
has some clear political consensus that can be sustained behind it. In an environment where you have an energy shock, reducing taxation for those at the top end of the income distribution is not just questionable economics, but it's extremely bad politics in the sense of maintaining some kind of coherent support for the policies you're putting in place. So I think I think it's absolutely fair to say that there is a, a common component. But if you look at markets around Western Europe, there has been nothing of the same sort of uh, uh, sequence of events as we've seen over from in the UK over the last couple of weeks. And so I do think that there is a component of this, which is some some chickens which the UK you know, has been incubating coming home to roost. There is one fundamental feature of that, of that crazy week for the UK, which is likely to have some resonance in other parts of the world. And that's the big rise in long-term interest rates, the borrowing costs attached to these IOUs that, that governments have, bonds have, but also interest rates attached to mortgages. Larry Summers has talked about feeling a little bit like 2007, that you're starting to get mini sort of explosions and problems in certain areas, canaries in the coal mine, of this much broader issue of the world having to adjust to much higher interest rates, potentially for several years, if central banks can't get inflation under control. Well, I think lingering in the background of all of this is a very fundamental question, which is, is the inflation process stable? If we were having this conversation probably three years ago, we would have been reflecting on how difficult advanced economies had found it to make sure inflation was not too low. Wind forward a few years, and here we are, not just looking at the issue of an increase in inflation, but really a a quite profound set of questions around whether central banks really are still in control of the inflation process. And so I think I think we need to recognize that that was all part of the backdrop against which the you know the the the, the markets responded in in the way that they did um, you know to to the uh, mini budget in the UK and these are uniquely challenging times and you're absolutely right to say some of the adjustments in markets that we've been seeing have been brutal as that has been been occurring. Now, I'll admit here that there is a bit of me that says, as much as one has to be careful what you wish for, if you had said prior to the pandemic, you can have a choice of an unemployment problem or an inflation problem on the other side of this, which one do you think we'd be we'd rather have and which are we better placed to be able to deal with? I think most economists, this one included, would have said, I'd rather have the inflation problem. Thank you. Because I think that actually... Of course, we may have both in the end. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. To some extent, you might not get to choose. You you just get (laughs) to choose the balance of both, right? But I think if if at the moment, I think it's fair to say, yes, policy may have been too easy for too long. Yes, it may be the case that what was originally thought of as an energy shock was actually something more fundamental than that. But I personally think that over time, we have a policymaking framework that can respond to that. We can do without the sorts of 
messiness that we got in the UK mini budget along the way, I would be less confident about making that statement if we were coming out of the pandemic and economies were extremely weak and we were worrying about getting growth back up again and trying to get unemployment down because there I would be wondering exactly what we could do to make that happen. So yes, it's a problem. Yes, it's not just the UK uh, uh, issue, but there is a bit of a sense, in my mind at least, that this is probably the problem we'd have chosen to have faced, given the sequence of events that uh, that we've seen over the last few years. Well, you, you've taken us to a to a welcome, uh, rather positive endpoint. So I definitely, I don't think we should we should go too far further down the road, but. Those who were listening carefully at the beginning may have a nagging question in their mind as to what the reference to silly walks referred to in the title of your piece. So maybe you should explain it. So um, for those who, those of your listeners who've heard of Monty Python, there Which is I suspect a very will include famous, many people, but well, Monty Python are, are sort of very archetypal seventies slash eighties British comedy. And one of their most iconic creations was the Ministry for Silly Walks, wherein individuals would make their way from A to B in all sorts of uh, entertaining ways. And John Cleese was the archetypal demonstrator of that. And I've always thought that there was something uniquely British about that in the sense that you would still get from A to B, but there would be some amount of entertainment to be had in the quirkiness of of the route and the manner of the motion. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there was a, there was always a sense looking at the UK that there was all sorts of quirkiness and you know idiosyncrasy to our politics, to our legal system. But international investors always thought, look, this is all very interesting and colourful, but the destin the, the route from A to B is ultimately a route from where you are to a sensible destination. And I think that, you know, what I was trying to get get at in that in the Silly Walks reference was a little bit that international investors are just beginning to wonder whether we're silly as opposed to whether this is just an entertaining walk. And of course, the idea of going from A to B feels particularly challenging today because it happens to be the day of a rail strike in the UK. (laughs) Um, But let's hope we do eventually get there. Malcolm Barr, thank you very much. My pleasure. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. With inflation at nearly 10% and many key workers being offered pay increases that are a fraction of that, the cost of living is a massive issue for households and for businesses across Britain. It's also getting in the way of the government's grand vision of the country's economic future, freed from the European Union. Our supply chain czar, Brendan Murray, found all of those tensions and more on a recent trip across the Mersey. I've been uh, knocking around here for 35 years. Uh, I'm on the landing stage, I tie the boats on, get the people on and off, unloading, discharging, you know, and uh, 
then we just wait for the next boat to come in then, usually each hour, every hour. When Liverpool residents claim that their seaside town in northern England is where the modern world began, they're not exaggerating. 40% of global trade crossed its wharfs in the late 19th century. This was the launch pad for the British Empire, the home of the shipping line that operated the Titanic, and the birthplace of the most popular UK export, the Beatles. One constant here has been the docks, seven miles of them along the Mersey River toward the Irish Sea. But Liverpool's port is in the midst of the worst labor unrest in a quarter century, a fight over the future of good jobs for generations of families like ferry dockhand Brian Thompson's. So in these 35 years, what have you seen changed for the better or for worse uh, yeah, well, here at the Port of Liverpool? Well, when I started here, it was like a big bus station. Every bus come to the pier head. Every bus had the pier head on the front of it. Now, there's no bus station here, you know, that's all gone. But they've put other bus stations about. But they've really, uh, they've rebuilt the city in the last 15 years, you know. This building was standing next to the Mersey Ferries building. That's a new building. You've got the Museum of Liverpool just over on the, the right-hand side. So it's, it's a nice welcoming city to come to, you know. At the moment, though, the dispute on the city's northern docks involves some 600 dock workers who've been on strike for the past few weeks. The dockers here have had a long history of ups and downs with their bosses. Here's Katie Fox-Hotis, a lecturer in employment relations at Sheffield University Management School. Liverpool, historically, was always one of the sort of most militant groups of docker trade unionists in the UK, a, a really sort of well-known history, very uh, politically inclined and, and um, strongly organized. All of that began to change with the, the ending of the National Dock Labor Scheme in the late 1980s, and that laid the groundwork for this 28-month-long strike in the mid-1990s, known as the Dockers' Strike from 1995 to 1998. As Fox Hotis explains, basically the entire workforce was fired 25 years ago, and new workers were hired through non-union agencies, and it was quite a bad employment situation, she said. But something happened over the past decade that turned the tide back in favor of the unions in Liverpool. We've really seen over the past decade, really, this sort of renaissance of union organizing on the docks in Liverpool. And it's been a slow, arduous process of really building the union up from nothing to the fighting force it is today that has almost 100% union density. You can see all that history today hanging on the walls of a Liverpool pub called the Casa, which was founded by one of the workmen who was fired back in 1995. Jackie Richardson manages the place. It's a community center where union members gather for meetings and to get financial help in these tough economic times. It's a non-profit organization. It's a social justice center and like a community hub. It's known as like a trade union bar, so the majority of the trade unions meet here. If there's a strike day, it goes from here. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the, the unions here, the affiliates to here, so have their regular meetings each week from here. And then people are, are struggling so much. You know, if someone comes in, it, you know, through these doors for advice or for help, if we can't help them, we'll try and point them in the direction of someone or we'll try and find someone that can help them. What Richardson hears from the Dockers is that they're trying to prevent their livelihoods from going in reverse. 
Their employer, Peel Ports, says it's offering a fair pay rise of more than 8% and that the strikers are threatening the local economy. That's the challenge across Britain for the new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, whose government is charged with reviving the UK economy in a way that doesn't unsettle financial markets, hurt the middle class, or alienate her political base. Around Liverpool, public sympathy has tilted toward the Dockers. Here's Brian Thompson again. I think, you know, that the interest rates and the inflation, people's money they're losing, they're going backwards. So they want to just stay level. They, I don't think they, they want to be greedy and they don't want any extra money. It's just like to keep level with inflation, which, you know, I think they've got a right for that, you know. With its connections to trade routes west to the Americas, Liverpool is well positioned to capitalize on Brexit, which was supposed to untether Britain from the European Union so it can thrive under new trade deals in the global economy. But Brexit's promise so far has mainly meant more paperwork for local businesses rather than newfound prosperity. Here's Elena Enthiso of the Liverpool Chamber of Commerce explaining how the city leverages its rich maritime history with the need to modernize after Brexit. I think it is a little bit of a mix of both because obviously you have to move on with technology, digitalization, paperless trade, frictionless trade. And I think we have a really good cluster of logistic capabilities in the region. Quite a few of our members are well prepared to cope with the changes post-Brexit, post-Covid, everybody's prepared to accept the volatility of all the trade supply chains, for example. And um, I think uh, Liverpool has to continue to play this vital role in the north of the UK uh, to, to be seen as, as a really good platform for trade links with all the overseas global networks that we have. For the Dockers, they just want a fair piece of Liverpool's future, and the signs of progress are rising among the scrapyards and vacant lots along the waterfront. And what you do here. So tell me, as we walk through the museum here, why On a recent weekday morning, tourists and school kids waited outside the Maritime Museum and bustled in and out of the shops in the redeveloped Albert Docks, a crown jewel of the industrial age when it opened in the mid-19th century. A 500 million pound stadium is being built near the banks of the River Mercy to be the new home of Everton, Liverpool's second most famous team in the English Premier League. You get a hell of a lot of tourists coming into Liverpool now. They want to take a ferry across the Mercy? Yes, it's one of the, uh, the bucket list things. You'd, you'd be surprised, you know, how many people have just been asked before. Life goes on day after day. In Liverpool, I'm Brendan Murray for Bloomberg News. Hearts torn in every way So ferry, cross the Mersey Cause this land's the place I Well, that's it for this rather British episode of Stephanomics. I'm escaping to Washington next week. In the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi and Magnus Henriksen with special thanks to Kitty Donaldson, James Woolcock, Malcolm Barr and Brendan Murray. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.